Well, if you have your Bibles, I, I do invite you. We're back in Second Kings chapter 6. This is uh, just another one of those amazing um, Old Testament narratives um, where there's... This is one where you're tempted to go past the time you have, and I'll try to really be disciplined. I'm not the most disciplined person, but um, previous I've said that Elisha uh, is just as powerful a prophet as his predecessor, Elijah, only that many of his miracles, um, though the same power, are often done in smaller settings. Not unusual to be behind closed doors, and hence they lack the dramatic power, the public nature shown in some of the great works of Elijah. Well, this is not true of the episode we're going to read about today. In it, um, Elisha is right in the middle of international relations between two kings and and, uh, uh, two nations. And in contrast to the idols, what we see in this passage is that indeed God is the true God. He's the living God. He sees. And Elisha is the temple presence of God surrounded by an army of angels. And Elisha in this models for us really this picture of Christ-like love. I invite you to stand for the reading and the hearing of God's word. 2 Kings 6, beginning in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, And thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. And so he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please Strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. 
and he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike them down, those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Would you pray with me? O Lord, your light is the light of life. Lead us in your truth and teach us that all the light that shines forth from your word may purify, renew, and transform us and become in us spiritual nourishment and power through Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Such an interesting story. And our story begins with the Syrians under surveillance. Okay, the Syrians are under surveillance. Now, as we begin our study, it should just be noted that scholars are unsure of the time of this event or how much time has transpired between the narrative and the healing of the Syrian commander Naaman and this particular, uh, these events. And it may even be that, um, uh, that some of the events that are, that are connected with Elisha and his works are not in chronological order. Okay? It wouldn't be necessary for that to be true. Um, so we're not positive about the, the timing of all this. Best guess is that this takes place when Jehoram is the king of Israel and Ben-Hadad II is king in Syria around 854 BC. I should also say, and and this has been an issue previously, that other translations will use the more traditional name for the Syrians, the more traditional name being Aram. Okay, so sometimes your your older translations will will refer to the Arameans. That's the same. It's just a synonym for the Syrians. Um, uh, so the same, same group of people, same, same uh, nation, and so forth. The king of Syria, whose residence was in the city of Damascus, was warring against the king of Israel. The Israel, the northern kingdom, is directly to the south of Syria, directly to the south of Damascus. And so they're warring with each other at this time. And it sounds like at this point, the Syrians are the more powerful and aggressor nation. But um, it sounds also that the Syrians making surprise raids, uh, ambushing uh, uh, groups and villages in Israel, but they're being stymied in their military objectives every time. And the reason for this is that God is giving the prophet Elisha intelligence of when and where the Assyrians are going to ambush the Israelites. And he is feeding this information to the king of Israel 
who has come to respect the prophet. And he is repeatedly making sure, the, the king is making sure that the Israelites in the targeted area are on alert, that they're being warned. I, I suppose in some cases they're getting out of town. In other cases, they're just uh, fortifying and, and preparing for these um, targeted ambushes. The intelligence is so accurate that on multiple occasions, when the king of Syria, uh, that it's so accurate that it, that it takes place on multiple occasions, well, the king of Syria concludes, we've got a mole. <laughs> you know, this is before bugs. This is before satellite technology. There's definitely a leak in his inner circle. That's what he concludes. And so when the king expresses his suspicions, one of his servants, one of his officials tells him that they have learned that this prophet in Israel, by the name of Elisha, is somehow able to know what the king is saying, even when he is in the privacy of his own bedroom. Now, this is a strange role for a prophet to be used by God to collect intelligence on an enemy army and to get involved in these very political and military um, uh, uh, events. We're reminded again that there is a huge difference between the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and the idol gods of other religions. Again, so much of this is just this continuing apologetic. People are constantly asking, how do we know who the true God is? Well, the Bible is emphatic on this point. All other gods are blind, deaf, and dumb. This is going right at the idols. They cannot see, they cannot hear or speak because they are false. They are no true gods, excepting what the New Testament tells us that very often there are these kind of demonic powers standing behind the worship of idols, but these are no gods. These are false. And it's a reminder that our faith in the triune God of the Bible, our faith in Yahweh is not misplaced. And with the true God, he sees and he knows all. Hebrews 4.13, the writer says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And what the result of the intelligence that Elisha is feeding to the king, well, that, that result is that the king and his people are being defended. They are being protected by God from their enemies. Okay? They're being protected. They are being defended. And this is another indication that Elisha is serving as a temple presence like a counter-temple to the temple in Jerusalem. This is the, the kind of benefits that having God's presence in your midst in the temple was meant to bring. We've already seen how Elisha is like this mobile temple presence of God, that he is purifying water. He is making the land uh, produce a, a harvest again. He's able to make women who are barren have children. He's able to heal people of their diseases. He provides supernatural food. He cures a poisonous stew. He heals the, the Syrian commander of leprosy. And now we see 
that that presence even goes further, that this presence means protection. It means defense. Even when the king kind of is half-hearted, as far as we can tell, if it's Jehoram, that he's half-hearted in his service uh, 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 to Yahweh. Elisha is this living Moab presence. And in the time of Elisha, you want to be connected to the prophet. Because what we're seeing is in Elisha, only in Elisha, in a culture that is in general characterized by death, by poison, by this kind of toxic uh, uh, culture. Well, in Elisha, there is blessing. In Elisha, there is life. And so Elisha is meant to be a picture to us of the kind of life and blessing that we find in and only in Jesus, the one who is not merely a man of God, like Elisha, but who was, in fact, the God-man, a much greater person than even the prophet. The prophet is only this, this kind of Old Testament picture. It's this Old Testament type helping us to, to increase our understanding, our, our, our appreciation for who the God-man is and what the God-man came uh, to accomplish and to be within his own nation, a nation at the time of Jesus that was not too dissimilar um, from the nation of Elisha's time, spiritually speaking. The nation at the time of Jesus was also a hard-hearted, unbelieving nation in the general, in the main. There are always exceptions, of course. Our story continues with the king of Syria devising a plan to solve a problem like Elisha. But now we'll see how the prophet himself is protected by unseen powers. Protected by unseen powers. The king of Syria is told that Elisha is in the town of Dothan, a town about 10 miles to the north of Israel's capital city of Samaria. So if you think of the state of Ohio, you know, and how Columbus is kind of in the center. Samaria is kind of in the center of the northern kingdom. And just 10 miles to the north is this little town of Dothan um, on a hill in the center of a plain. And there we're told um, that the king of Syria believed in the military principle of overwhelming force. Because we read in verse 14, so he sent their horses and chariots and a great army And they came by night and surrounded the city. All this to capture one guy. Okay, one guy. Now, okay, in fairness, you know, we're all thinking militarily more with what's happening in Europe. Um, They're thinking we might have to go through a lot of people to get to the one guy. But they send um, uh, this large enough group of people to surround the entire town. And that morning, Elisha's servant goes out of the house to find that the town is surrounded by an army. The servant rushes back in a panic to Elisha. And that is when we come to this stirring passage in um, 2 Kings chapter 6 and uh, verse 16 and, and 17. And, and there we read, Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. What we're meant to understand is, so the city of Dothan on a hill, what they would call a mountain, is surrounded by a plain, and, and the Syrians have surrounded the city on the plain. But standing between, actually, the Syrian chariots and soldiers, what the, the servant's eyes are open to are all these fiery chariots that are between the man, Elisha, and the, this enemy army. They're, they're on this hill um, bet, between Elisha and the Syrians. And what we're also meant to understand, this, there are more angels than there are, even though this is a great army, there are scores of these angelic beings here described with the, the, this kind of terminology of, of the horses and the, and the fiery chariots. And this scene does several things at once. It connects Elisha with the glory of his predecessor, Elijah, and that it was with chariots and fiery horses Uh, that Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. And now we see Elisha in the presence of an army of angelic beings. Elisha is a prophet on the level and greatness of Elijah. Let there be no mistake is part of what we're to uh, conclude from this passage. There is nothing secondary about the prophet Elisha. In addition, the scene in which there are angels and fire and chariots, they link us to the glory cloud, uh, which fills the tabernacle, which filled the temple. You see, within this cloud, the cloud that settles on Mount Sinai, for the most part, you can only see the outside of the cloud. And it it is dark and it is threatening. But there are occasions in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has his vision of God and the cherubim, or in Ezekiel chapter 1, where Elisha, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel the prophet is taken inside the glory cloud and he sees the glory of the, of the cherubim, these angels, these mighty angels that are surrounding the very throne upon which uh, the Lord sits. This is connecting us again with that temple idea. Elisha is a counter-temple. He himself is, in a sense, in the center of this, this cloud of glory, these glorious cherubim. And this scene also helps us to appreciate all the more something that Jesus says to his disciples on the night of his arrest, when the soldiers came to capture him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you recall that Peter is, I don't know if it's instinctively, maybe it was not, but he takes a sword and he immediately attacks the uh, the priest's servant, cutting off his ear. And Jesus tells him to put away your sword. And then he goes on to say this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Okay, a Roman legion at this time was somewhere around 5,200, 5, uh, soldiers. There's thousands of angels. And hearkening back to the scene with Elisha, I would imagine that those angels are on alert, that they are right there. They're just waiting for the word. Can you imagine any of us 
in Christ's position, being arrested at that time, betrayed with a kiss at that time, how tempting it would be either at that time or any time moving up to the cross to say, Lord, I give the word. Let those angels, let those fiery chariots and horses do their worst. But of course, Jesus ends his little um, statement to, to Peter by saying this, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, his end is not going to be like Elisha's end. He will, in fact, be a sacrifice. And further, this passage in 2 Kings reminds us simply of the reality of the unseen world. It reminds us of the reality that there are angels that we cannot see. We live in an empirical, kind of almost deistic age in which it's so easy. Like We just are trained by our culture to say that really the only thing that's real are the things that we can test through empirical methods, things that are scientifically um, you know, testable uh, and, and repeatable. And we can easily kind of fall into this mindset to the degree that we forget about the invisible world of angels and demons and, and uh, 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 spiritual prince, uh, powers and principalities. In Hebrews, we learn this about the angels. In chapter 1, verse 14, are they not, that is, the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels are ministering spirits sent out to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. And how do they minister to us? Well, sometimes angels are the answer to prayers. One example is in Acts chapter 12, when the apostle Peter is imprisoned. And the believers um, gather in the the home of, uh, I believe it's uh, John Mark's mother's house. (laughs) And they're praying um, for Peter, who's been imprisoned by Herod. And Peter, we read, he's chained between soldiers. And James has just been martyred. And the, the, the fear is that this is what will happen to Peter, the, the apostle, that he too will be martyred. And we read in Acts um, 12, verse 7, that behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, prior to this, we read that there's this group of believers praying for Peter, and then this leads to this humorous scene. The angel leads Peter um, miraculously out of his, um, uh, his prison cell, past soldiers and so forth, and Peter goes to the home of John Mark's mother. And he's not, you remember this, he's knocking on the door, and the servant girl comes, and she says, Oh, hold on. She shuts the door. She goes and tells the group her praying, Peter is at the door. Do you remember what the, the people praying say? Oh, it can't be Peter. He's in jail. Sometimes God uses angels, real angels, invisible angels, 
as answer to our prayers. Angels at times are sent to encourage and to provide for God's people on two occasions with Jesus. One, following his 40-day fast and temptation in the wilderness. And a second time, while in that Garden of Gethsemane that I previously referenced, we're told that angels come to him in his time of desperate need, and they minister to him. The psalmist declares in Psalm 91.11, For he, the Lord, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It is not a bad prayer. You know, I pray this regularly, especially for people who are going into a difficult situation, like a surgery or something like that. Just, Lord, you know, post one of your angels to stand watch over this beloved child of yours, to watch over and to, to protect and, and, and to uh, defend them. Just that they are there, even if there's no nurse, there's no family member, there's an angel posted to watch over God's people. We're also reminded of how when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, it was an angel that God sent to shut the mouths of the lions. Through church history, there have been many reports of mysterious visitors. They just seem to show up spontaneously in times of need, providing resources, sometimes providing food or other material needs, sometimes providing protection. Elisha's story reminds us to consider praying that God would send his angels to stand watch to provide for his people, especially in time of need. And the third act of this narrative concludes with this surprising demonstration of love. Elisha prays to the Lord twice. The first time he prays, so that the eyes of his servant are opened, that the servant can see the invisible world of mighty and glorious angelic beings that surround them. But then Elisha prays a second time. And this is a prayer of reversal. He prays that the eyes of the Syrians might be blinded. Now, this blindness appears to be less about their inability to see with their physical eyes as it appears from the context of what we read. It appears to be more of like their brains are being fogged. They're, it's like they suddenly lose their complete sanity for a time. It's a kind of mental blindness that descends upon them. You know, it's like they become susceptible to Elisha's Jedi mind tricks. The man you are looking for is not here. I will take you to the man you are looking for. It's not exactly that, but you get the idea. So Elisha marches the soldiers down to the capital city of Samaria into a place where apparently they are disarmed. And the effect of of their being taken down to Samaria is they now are prisoners of war. They they are now uh, captured. Then Elisha prays a third time that their eyes would be opened and the fog lifts from their minds. They're now able to understand where they are. They're able to understand the reality of their capture by the king of Israel in Samaria. 
they know they are the aggressors. They are the invaders. They know they were willing to kill, you know, however many people necessary in order to achieve their military objective of capturing the man of God. And if necessary, they probably would have killed him too if he had put up a fight. And they would know that their lives are in jeopardy. And so the king of Israel immediately sees this opportunity to degrade the enemy army. So he asks Elisha, interesting, my father. That's an interesting language for a king to use of a prophet. And we see his respect being shown. We see this interesting relationship between king and prophet that only was true in in, uh, uh, in Israel. This was not true in Gentile nations. My father, shall I strike them down? And you can feel the eagerness of the king because he repeats himself. Shall I strike them down? If you didn't hear me, can I get them now? Is this, this, do I have to wait a few minutes or can, can we just take care of business? Elisha's response is so interesting. Verse 22, Elisha answers, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? See, what he's saying here is in Israel, the law required had certain standards of war. There were certain ethics of war. Not anything went. If you were a captured prisoner of war, if you are unarmed, Elisha's appealing to the law. They are not to be killed. So, and what Elisha is saying here is, look, even if they were POWs, if that was the way we were categorizing them, you wouldn't kill them. But in fact, what Elisha is saying, they're not POWs. Instead, he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. What Elisha is saying is that these men are guests. Elisha's saying, we're not going to treat them as prisoners of war. We're not going to interrogate them. We're not going to, you know, um, give them a harsh uh, uh, experience of our hospitality. No, we're going to treat them as honored guests. And it's so very interesting um, that this continues in, in this, um, uh, you know, right at the end of this passage, where he says, so he, and this is the king, So the king prepared for them, the Syrian army, not just bread and water, but it says a great feast. And the feeling is, this wasn't just enough to keep them from starving, but when they had enough, when they had eaten and they had drunk, you know, until they were satisfied, only then were they returned freely, unharmed, to their, uh, their homeland, to their, their homes back in Syria. This is quite amazing. It's remarkable. It's surprising. Again, um, the, these Syrians, they deserved whatever mistreatment they, they probably would have received given what their intentions were, given uh, that they had invaded Israel. But God is present in Elisha. And at least in this case, God models his amazing grace by treating enemies not as they deserve, not with a sense of justice, but with grace 
and love. And at the end, we read that these limited raids on Israel cease after the Syrian soldiers are returned to their home. Now, again, we're going to see in the very next passage, the the Syrians are going to come back down. We don't know how much time is in between, and nor do we know the chronological order. But at least for a time, the raids into Israel came to an end. And this is where we find ourselves in the story. We are not Elisha. We're not the ones who have all this amazing power, at least in the same level or degree. Instead, we find ourselves with these associated with these Syrian soldiers. We find ourselves right alongside these Gentiles who defy God in their idolatry, in their sin, in their attempt to capture God's prophet. We too have defied God by our own sins, by our own idols. We too were at one time enemies. And this is what the Apostle Paul is referencing in Romans chapter 5 when he writes, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ not just threw a party for us, he died. He dies for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It was while we were enemies by virtue of our sin and rebellion that Jesus dies for us. And then rather than treating us as our sins deserve, he spared us from death and destruction. And unlike Elisha, again, it came at the cost of his own life through his death on the cross. And what does the king do after sparing us? He feeds us. He gives us bread and drink, symbolized every time we are invited to join the Lord Jesus at his table, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that supper is always pointing us to the real thing. It's always pointing us to that future banquet, that future feast in the eternal kingdom of God. Like the Syrians, I mean, the question should be, are we grateful? We should be. And at least one way that we show our gratitude is by modeling this enemy love towards others. For whatever reason, towards those who, for whatever reason, are just on the other side of the fence from us, to model this amazing, surprising, unexpected enemy love. This is a love that was shown by Elisha, but again, ultimately on a far, far greater uh, platform in the life and death of Jesus. Well, let's pray. Hmm. Hmm. Almighty King, we praise you as you've granted us to pass through the previous days of this week and to reach this Lord's Day morning in peace. Hear our prayers, accept our petitions, and rain down upon your people the fullness of your grace. Surround us with your holy angels. 
Fence us in with your truth and grant that we may end this day and finally our life in the fullness of holiness and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the Holy Spirit be glory and praise forever and ever. Amen.